AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. Dan, I understand that there's been a uh, good finding with Emotet in, in a bug. Yes. Uh, so this is one of my favorite types of stories because it shows that uh, as much as uh, adversaries like to uh, hack into things, uh, they can also actually, uh, I guess, make mistakes in their software, uh, which leaves their uh, malware uh, vulnerable. Um, and I, another reason I like the story is actually kind of semi-related to a story we covered on ThreatTrack um, a few weeks ago. It's not exactly related, but it's like in the same theme or in the same category uh, of uh, security researchers uh, taking active defense measures. Uh, so I guess before I, I talk about how great the story is, um, I, let me tell you what, what it is and what happened. So a security researcher named James Quinn uh, discovered that um, on February 6th, uh, a new version of Emotet came out. And this new version, once he started analyzing it, it had a new uh, persistence mechanism. And the way the persistence works is, I guess the malware needed to make sure that it wasn't previously installed um, or something like that in order to continue running. Uh, and it used a registry key to do a part of its uh, work. Um, so what James was able to discover is that if he set a specific value inside of that registry key, uh, he actually was able to prevent the malware from running correctly uh, because of uh, how it would uh, function. So um, uh, the other thing he learned is that there was a buffer overflow in another part of the code uh, that if he uh, set like an 800 byte buffer or something like that, somewhere else the, the malware would actually crash. But not only that, um, this would create have the effect of uh, creating two um, event log entries in the window event viewer uh, at specific event IDs. Uh, so this is all good, of course. So being able to figure out that there's this problem with Emotet and um, you know it's malware that's being distributed widely, uh, what do you do about that? Or how do you take advantage of this exploit? So James and team, they actually, is another reason I like the story is they worked with security researchers um, to provide them like a little program uh, that you could run, uh, which is almost like a vaccine. So he took a part of the, a piece of the malware almost. He basically injected this registry key, uh, basically like injecting the virus into your system, sort of, not a real virus, of course, an inert version of it, just the registry key. And then if you ever, if the virus or this malware ever try to come through and get infected, it, it's almost like this antibody in the registry would yeah. prevent it from being able to be installed, which I thought was really, really clever. And distributing this little like vaccine um, to all of the organizations that they distributed to, I thought was, was really cool because not only um, were, was, was there positive feedback that you know, he received, um, he also got some suggestions for how to make it better or how to make the, the vaccine work in other operating system versions that maybe he didn't test on. Um, so it was great, you know, by releasing it, he also got, you know, obviously he probably got a lot of goodwill from the community, which is great. Um, and he also was able to get some uh, uh, people to kind of uh, give him some suggestions for improvements of how it could be more useful. Um, so another thing that I thought was really, really clever in the story is that uh, uh, James actually tried to create a CVE uh, for the vulnerability that he found in the malware. Uh, but 
the miter didn't take it. I, I didn't know this is something I learned, but apparently if your software is defined primarily as malware, uh, they will not, you know, create TVEs for it. They'll only try to create no, no TVEs for legitimacy. Right. <laughs> no, no bug right. Yeah, no bug, no bug bounty. Um, so the unfortunately, you know, the adversaries we know they're always adapting, and so currently this vaccine doesn't work. So they're you know kind of publicly talking about it now, just to kind of share the coolness of the story. Uh, but the fact that you know he was able to use some clever, uh, I would say, you know, malware reverse engineering jujitsu to create a vaccine for a real trojan is kind of cool. Um, and uh, at least it worked for a few months and, and kept organizations a little bit um, uh, safer uh, who were able to take advantage of this, uh, of this vaccine. Um, it's a really cool story. Um, hope you guys enjoy it. Um, and I encourage yeah. everyone to check out the blog and, and kind of get into the details of how it worked. Uh, there's a lot of very interesting info um, that's, that's kind of out there. What's, what's amazing to me is that they were able to actually keep this sort of under wraps for almost six months. Like, yes. so it's been six months and I, I didn't actually, I didn't even realize it. I didn't realize that in essence, they're saying that Emotet had been dormant for the last six months, at least for some, I'm assuming some of these organizations that had gotten this vaccine, as you call it. Um, but it's amazing to me that they managed to sort of, distribute this vaccine out to certain, you know, groups, because I'm, I'm, obviously it wasn't uh, widely distributed, the vaccine, but they were able to distribute it, and these people were, in essence, immune to this for about six months until, obviously, the bad actors realized what happened, and then they rewrote, re rewrote their code, right? That's, a, that's amazing yep. to me. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, it's been a few years back, but there was a case where there was a virus and somebody wrote it like it's not and i'm going to say antivirus but it's almost the wrong terms but like you would infect yourself with this other virus and it would prevent the bad one from infecting you and you know and that kind of sounds like this is a similar story is that hey if i go out and get this thing and, and if you, you could even turn it into a bot or you know some kind or some other you know infectious vector worms to prevent you from getting emotet and and there was a i'm trying to remember what that was called but it's it's been a few years ago that they they did something like that uh, no, I was going to say that, you know, there's a lot of very similar cases, uh, like you mentioned, John, where security researchers, like, do something and actually it helps the community as a whole in a big way. I think WannaCry was, like, another example where a um, person was able to, like, register basically a kill switch domain. They probably didn't even know, didn't even know it at the time, but they did it, uh, which is kind of cool. Uh, so it prevented the ransomware piece from working on WannaCry-infected computers. Maybe one day uh, I can create a vaccine. I didn't think it was possible to create a vaccine, but this story told me uh, taught me that it is. Uh, so it's uh, really really cool. You know, it's all part. I mean, this is this is kind of in your world, right? I mean, this is all part of like reverse engineering. So if you reverse it, I guess far enough, you understand the inner makings and the workings of something like this. And then you can sort of backtrack it, and you you use almost that same knowledge against them. Um, and you know, like I said, it's it's kind of cool that they were able to do this and then keep it sort of under wraps. Because uh, you know, obviously, if if this would have gotten out on day one, if they would have made it public on day one, it would have this would have this vaccine would have lasted a week, right? And then it would have been over. Uh, but you know, again, the, the the fact that they were able to do this, reverse it 
get the stuff out there, you know, let their, you know, customers, I guess at that point, um, take advantage of the vaccine for this long, uh, I'm sure they appreciated it. I'll be wanting to become a, a doctor as well uh, soon. <laughs> <laughs> So, hey, John, you've got a story about uh, potentially Instagram having a little issue with perhaps their RIM policy. Yeah, I, I guess it's, it's kind of a RIM issue. It's kind of a data storage problem. It, it, it's, it's hard to classify just because, you know, for, for many of us, it's, it's a tough situation. Um, so so you, you, if you remember in, in the European Union and GDPR, you know, we have this data privacy concern, right? Big big, huge issues. Um, state of California has other similar laws, other states and municipalities do as well, where your data is yours, right? And if you say, hey, wipe me, you know, wipe me from the system, or you can say, I want to see what you've captured for me, and they have to send it to you. Now, again, it's, it's based on sovereignty. So if you're like me and living in Missouri, I can't go to a California and say, give me all my data, or Germany, you know, it's, it's kind of hard. Uh, difficult, I shouldn't say. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. So what this researcher did, who was uh, in that area, and I always, I always butcher his name, it's Saget Pakarol, I think is how you pronounce it. So I probably butchered it really bad, but he, he had actually asked for Instagram to send him the data that they had for his account, for his Instagram account. And when he got it, he started noticing all this content that he had said, please delete. You know, when, when you get your Instagram and say, hey, permanently delete this as you're maybe sending something or that he noticed other people had deleted from him, you know, sending to him or sharing in the Instagram. And he started looking at that a little deeper and discovered that the Instagram servers were retaining basically every record. They, they weren't deleting. When you said delete it, they weren't deleting it. <laughs> so so it, it's kind of an interesting challenge in that, you know, it's good to know this, if you, but and he got paid a $6,000 bug bounty for it, which is always great that they reward him for it. But it just leads you know, us to all try to remember that anything that we put out there, even the stuff that we say delete, you know, our, my kids doing Snapchat, you know, they're supposed to be like you know, those three-second little or TikToks and all that other stuff is only supposed to last a certain amount of time. Even when you say delete it, it, it was somewhere stored at one time or another. And we don't know really if it got deleted. And there's also the whole issue of, hey, if I shared this picture with somebody, um, did they take a snapshot of it? And now they own it because it's on their machine. It's not your content anymore. Uh, so they've used it. So it, it just, it, it's an interesting, you know, I, I guess from, from my perspective, from a privacy perspective, to recognize that, you know, we do have content that's out there that we may, we may think is gone but isn't. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's definitely an interesting story, and I think it brings up a, quite a few things. Um, uh, I'm sure a couple things that I, you know uh, I'm sure we don't need to exactly dive into, which is you know sort of the the legal side of it uh, in terms of you know when you look at something like this and you look at potentially um, you know like we know that from a law enforcement perspective there are some things that you sort of are forced to save, right? 
um, and there's data that you have to store for for legal purposes. And so a lot of times that that contradicts with a, another policy that there may be about regular storage of data. And so I think you're absolutely right with these companies out there that are storing our data out there. You never know where your data is going to land in their policies. You know, even though they may say, oh, yeah, no, you're if you tell us to delete your data, your data is gone. That might not be the case, and clearly this story is showing that, right? Um, yeah. is, that, is that, you know, and I, I, you know, I'm not sure if they, if they've stated that this was just like a bug, right? That they went and fixed and they said, oh, yeah, no, that was, yeah, it was a mistake. It was a, right? <laughs> it was a coding issue, or if it was like, oh, crap, you know, our policy, you know, uh, oh, yeah. man, we got to, you know, something like that, you know? Yeah, that, that. It reminds me of that I had a story with a friend of mine who was saying that she she wanted to get the tweet from a public figure, but the public figure had deleted that tweet. And I said, no, 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 <laughs> we can get it. You know, it's not me personally having to get it, but I'm just saying is that there are everybody in the world is has, especially if you're a public figure is capturing your stuff. So delete is not delete. You know, especially in public figures. It's an interesting philosophical like dilemma of uh, as I think about the issue of privacy, like as we were coming up, like I think we witnessed right this evolution of people like migrating to start using Facebook and Instagram and whatever is going to be the next technology. So we like the old schoolers, we uh, we kind of think about privacy still. Like wait, like should that be posted there and. I don't know about you guys, like I can't, I am conscious when I am like interacting on any of these platforms because I kind of expect that my data is going to be viewed by more than just me or there's a chance that it might leak or maybe I'll be checking my email later somewhere and there'll be like a page of it left over there. So you kind of have to expect that that's happening. What I'm curious about is, you know, kind of like the next generation of users of these platforms. Mm -hmm. Do they realize that this is something that they have to be worried about, or do they kind of trust these platforms to behave exactly as, well, maybe they assume they behave? Um, do they go through this, like, kind of conspiracy theory, tinfoil hatty, should I really be posting this uh, analysis before posting literally everything? Now, I know by watching some of the things they get posted out there, it's absolutely not the case that people think this way. <laughs> you know, people Correct. probably think that they can just put their stuff out there and it gets deleted. But it's going to be interesting because I think, like, in my own mind, I'm like, yeah, everyone is thinking the same way. Uh, but as I think as people, like, grow up with the technology, like maybe my kids or even their kids, they might not think about it as much. And um, they might actually be, you know, this could be more of an issue for them in terms of creating the content that later they wish they could have deleted. Uh, but, and, and maybe they did, but it was not really gone. Um, I'm also, it's also interesting that, um, you know, this person was able to get a bug bounty for basically, I guess, with like a policy violation. So a lot of bug bounty programs, they almost like pride you on uh, finding like some zero day where you get into yeah. the system and you're like, you know, steal all the data or something like this. But this is so different because it's more of, hey, there was like miscommunication between the delete button and the yeah. data on the server. 
It's more like a policy thing. So it's great that that this person was re rewarded. Uh, that's awesome. And I think I think your point though too about you know the, the, the generational gap is 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 pretty you know prevalent. I mean, you think about us. You know, we got a piece of paper, right? We think, oh, hey, I got this. Piece, I got to go shred this because I can go take it to the copy machine and make a copy of it. And 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 the younger generations don't see that, right? They don't think of that stuff getting captured in other mechanisms. They say, oh, if I send it out, you know, I tell my kids is what you're saying is, is that if if you post something, you don't know who has it, you don't know what they did with it, and you don't know where it's going to go from from after you let go of it. Even if you say delete, that doesn't mean it's deleted. It just means your version of it is deleted. And I think that that's the educational uh, opportunities, I guess, that we need to make sure that people understand, especially, like you said, as, as the generations get younger, they're expecting that the delete button does a delete. They just don't consider that, that I, I, you know, I said it, I want to do this. Did it happen? Confirm it. You know, it, it, it's the law. Why isn't it gone? So, yeah, it, it, yeah. It, I think we'll have to, we'll have to keep preaching the gospel, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I'm just hopeful that one day my kids will like stumble on this YouTube channel and be like, oh, yeah, my dad did know what he was talking about. There he is <laughs> talking about privacy. It's on the record in 2020. <laughs> hey, Manny, I'm really curious about the story you have for us today. Yeah, so uh, today's story is, is, is kind of a simple one. Uh, I'm sure it'll be a, a quick one here. We've probably done stories about uh, DDoS attacks in the past. Um, we've, I'm sure we've covered, covered them quite extensively on this, on this show. But the, the reason why this one sort of caught my eye was um, some, of the, some of the details behind, you know, what the, what the potential threat actor group or groups uh, uh, were. Um, and some of the details behind, like what uh, what they were asking for. So this particular story talks about. Actually, it was it was discovered by the Akamai uh, CERT, which is the Security Intelligence Research Team. Um, and about a week ago, they discovered a uh, a threat actor group um, or, or groups. It's not exactly clear at this point whether it's a single group um, or or multiple groups. But they were claiming to actually be um, two different threat actor groups, uh, the, Armada, the Armada Collective and Fancy Bear, which I think we've talked about. It. I know we've talked about Fancy Bear before. I'm not sure if we've covered Armada Collective. Uh, the Armada Collective is actually a group that was really active about five years ago um, and were active for maybe a couple of years, and then they kind of uh, uh, went off the radar. That's not to say that they didn't, you know, dis they, did, they disappeared, uh, but they definitely fell off the radar. And all of a sudden, now we're hearing that the, this group is claiming to be this Armada co uh, Collective. Uh, and, and obviously, as, as we know, Fancy Bear is something that we've talked about before. Fancy Bear is associated with uh, with APT28, uh, and it's been linked to uh, the Russian government. Um, so that one we're very familiar with. Um, and in typical style with these DDoS um, uh, stories, this, this threat actor group or groups that were claiming to be these, these two APT groups, these threat actor groups, um, would be, in essence go and, uh, and go to these companies, and they were basically targeting financial and the retail sector. 
Um, and in typical style, they would send a, you know, a ransom, you know, note, you know, email. They would contact somebody in the company and say, hey, look, we, um, we have access uh, to DDoS. We have, we have the means to, to do a DDoS uh, against uh, your company. And uh, these, these ransoms that they were uh, sending out to these folks were, were interesting because they had seen them coming from both of these groups. So at some times they would see the ransom note being said that they were the Armada Collective. And in that case, the demand was five Bitcoin, which is equivalent to about $60,000 today. And then it would increase to 10 Bitcoin if they didn't meet the deadline. Um, and then if they, and then for every day after they didn't meet the deadline, it would go up another five Bitcoin. And that was for the Armada Collective. Anytime they saw the ransom note going and it was signed claiming that they were fancy bear, they were asking 20 Bitcoin, which is substantially, you know, more. It's about $240,000. Um, and 30 Bitcoin if they had mi missed the deadline. And then an additional 10 Bitcoin per day for every day after the, they've mi they missed the deadline. Um, so obviously this threat actor group or groups, um, it is a, a, the Akamai group believes that this is actually not in fact either one of those groups, that this is actually copycats or, or a single copycat that is basically pretending to be these two groups. And why would they do that? Well, probably the, for the, the biggest reason is yeah, they're big names, right? So if you're, if you're a company out there you've pro and you're doing insecurity, you've probably heard about you know, one of these two groups, certainly somebody like Fancy Bear. And I'm sure they use these to say, well, let me see what size company I'm going after. If it's, if it's a smaller company, maybe I claim to be the Armada Collective. I have a smaller ransom. You might not know who I am, right? If, if it's a bigger company, I'm going to claim to be Fancy Bear because Fancy Bear is going to scare the crap out of you, right? And now I can ask for this bigger, huge payout, for, you know. So, so interesting that, you know, that they're using this, and it appears to be these basically copy, it's a copycat group that's using, in essence, their reputation to go after these companies, um, you know. And, you know, I think that's, that's really the crux to this story was sort of around this group, you know, sort of doing this copycatting and then how they changed their tactics based on who they were pretending to be. So, so this is a, a DDoS, right? They were threatening a DDoS. That's correct. Yeah. And they were, their threats were actually, they had threatened up to a two uh, terabit per second, which is, you know, which is actually a significant amount. Now, I'm not sure if Akamai actually saw something up at that range, but the claims okay. were that they were capable of doing it. Okay, that, that that was my next question: is, is did we did they ever see anybody actually get attacked? You know, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, and I, I, it wasn't clear to me uh, whether they actually saw any of the attacks themselves, because there was no there was no evidence in at least the stories that I read directly from Akamai's pages um, that claimed any you know sort of uh, you know actual traffic that they saw. So I think a lot of the story is based on the evidence that they saw about the actual ransom notes being delivered and what they were, you know, what they were claiming. I think uh, it definitely shows something about the adversaries that, you know, they're actively planning this. They're not, they didn't stumble into the crime 
or into the yeah. attack or into the they're not like you know they've committed to this they're like you know what we're doing this we're going to send out a ransom note and we're going to make decisions of which way you know what kind of note we're going to send um which i think should remind us all that you know there's a lot of these groups out there it doesn't matter you know what they're called or who they're associated with but they are out there every day and they are planning um you know how to do a fraud scheme or scheme or how to implement a cyber attack um so it's just much more important for i guess the security community in general to pay attention and make sure that we're implementing as a security community, you know, good measures of defense uh, all throughout. As you go through your day, you might see something wrong. Do something about it. Like some of the stories we, we saw today, like James, you know, created a vaccine. Um, so go ahead and, and do things. Or like uh, the other story where somebody, you know, noticed the privacy settings weren't quite right and reported mm -hmm. them. Um, so definitely, that that's what like as I think about this and as I think about how like purposeful the adversaries are, I think that we as security community should be as purposeful in fulfilling our mission. And you might you know you might have a day job, but by night you got to be like Batman. You got to find the bugs, report them. Uh, right. Here I am probably dating myself for my kids when they watch this in the future with Batman. I don't know what's gonna I don't know who's gonna be the superhero then. Uh, you know, the other, the other thing I keep thinking about when I was, was hearing, you know, Manny, hearing you talk about this story is, is what is the real Fancy Bear think about these actors? You know, is, is that, is there going to be, you know, and we've seen that before, right? Quite a few times these APT groups and these other, um, you know, malicious teams will attack one another just to either show dominance or to get their hands into that, they see that money over there. And, and you just have to wonder if we, as we, as you know, you were saying, Manny, we know Fancy Bear's got a lot of backing, a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you have to wonder if they're not going to go and say, uh, guys, you're not going to horn in on my business. You know, let's, let's, right. let's cut. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's, that's definitely a group that, you know, I, I would certainly think twice before I decided that my scheme was going to, uh, uh, you know, uh, copy one of those threat actor groups. Um, so I, I don't I don't know what that means. I don't know if that means that this this copycat group is feeling pretty, you know, uh, full of themselves at this point. And they're like, you know, we can pretend to be anybody because, you know, there there won't be any repercussions. But you're right. I mean, we've certainly seen threat actor groups, you know, decide to sort of, you know, attack each other. You know, when you know, one feels like they've intruded on, on, on some, somebody else's turf. So, you know, maybe, you know, maybe that's the story we'll be talking about in, in a week or two <laughs> when, when the group, you know, retaliates back at this, you know, at this group. So we'll see. I wonder if uh, the adversaries actually don't mind this confusion in the space, because especially ones yeah. who are reportedly as connected as, as some of these are, um, because then it just creates confusion about like, who's who and who's doing what. It might actually be to their benefit, unfortunately. Uh, but I guess we'll see if they decide to take any action uh, yeah, as a result. Yeah, how paranoid do you want to be? Is it's like you know, so we know this is a copycat group, but maybe it's a copycat group that's within Fancy Bear. You know, it, 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 it's it's purposefully, like you said, I think Stan, you alluded to is, is it, maybe it's purposefully 
being a copy just to, to throw a little confusion into the work. I got to go get more tinfoil for my tinfoil. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, but all great theories. I mean, you know, yeah, you have to think about that 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 angle as well. Is that you know maybe you know maybe these groups. I'm sure there's a limit, right? I'm sure that you're right, Stan. That this group at some level was like, you know what? Eh, yeah, they use our name. That's all right. It you know it helps to bolster our name when we actually go to use it for real. Um, but there's there is probably some limit. You know, when they look at it and they go, okay, this threat actor group is using our name, and now they may be you know, stealing targets, stealing money out of our pockets, and there's probably a limit. And once you reach that limit, then probably all hell breaks loose, right? So, yeah, great point. Awesome story, man. Thanks. Yep, absolutely. Hey, everyone. This is Stan, and I have uh, today's Internet weather. So the Internet weather is how we study um, threats on the internet or different cyber threats. Specifically, one of the things we'll look at is scanning activity. Scanning activity is a great way to measure um, reconnaissance or what different adversaries are used to. Uh, so what I have in front of me right now is uh, the top 10 most probe ports report. Uh, so this is us measuring scanning activity by looking at um, how much scanning is going on in a particular port by volume and ranking it against the scanning activity against all of the ports. And uh, if we look at the list, these are the same ports we cover pretty much every week. Uh, the one that looked interesting to me was port 9530. Even though it's down a few places from last week, um, I, um, I hadn't looked at this one for a while and I thought it was interesting, so I wanted to share with you uh, kind of what we see uh, happening here. Uh, this. Here, actually, is a view, a 30-day view of scan activity on port 9530 TCP. And you can see something interesting. So the volume of scanning, it's not a great deal. It's in the, uh, looks like millions or 180 million flow records uh, per hour. Uh, but it started uh, sometime, uh, I guess, maybe 15 days ago or something like that, maybe 20 days ago. And you could see how the activity is actually ramped up possibly as more um, victims became compromised or something like that. You could also see these little uh, um, parts here where maybe the activity first started um, on this port or started again. Um, so with activity like this, it's always interesting to see what it might be attributed to. Um, so looking at one of the ways to do that is by looking at like who is doing the activity, like who is doing the scanning. Um, is it a security researcher? Is there a few devices? Is there a lot? And you could see something interesting here. So there's not a, a ton of scanners. Actually, if you look, the activity, just like we noticed in the report, the activity is trending downward by how many devices are doing the scanning. But you could see that earlier uh, in the month, uh, there were definite spikes. Um, and you could see possibly as more devices became recruited into the botnet or, or to this threat, uh, the um, number of devices conducting the scanning um, had increased. Um, so stuff like this, you guys know me, I'm always interested to find out, like, what are the devices behind the scanning? What are they? Where are they located? Um, and maybe what's causing it? Uh, so I took a list of about 700 or so IP addresses that are scanning within the last two hours, um, and I decided to superimpose that on the map here. Um, I like to do this because kind of shows like hot spots of activity potentially and where the threat might be emanating from. If, uh, if you've been looking at these maps for a while, 
you'll notice that some threats might originate out of like Asia, others out of Europe, others out of the Middle East or South America. So I find it very useful to kind of uh, take a look here. So with only 718 IP addresses, it's a little hard to uh, measure specific hotspots, but you could actually see uh, that there is definite hotspots like in Korea and uh, I think that's Japan and uh, definitely some there in the, I guess, Europe or Middle East, um, South America. But it seems like uh, by the previous chart, this threat is both growing and already shrinking. Uh, so there's definitely a bunch of devices infected, maybe 1,000 or maybe, you know, 2,000, uh, but it's not like hundreds of thousands like with some of the other uh, threats that we see. So what does it all mean? Uh, so I try to do a little bit of research on this port. We actually did cover this on ThreatTrack probably um, even a few years ago when it first surfaced, uh, but it turns out that this is, uh, just re-reminding myself, uh, this is a threat that uh, impacts specific um, uh, chipsets, uh, so high silicon chips running a specific version of firmware. It was discovered by a security uh, researcher in 2018. There's a CVE uh, that's associated with it. Uh, and basically, uh, connecting to this port allows you to open up another port where you can then log in with a backdoor credential, basically, like a, an administrative credential. Um, it gives you full administrative command line access to the device. These devices are DVRs. So one of the things I did is that from the 700 IP addresses, I picked like random IP addresses, a few dozen, and I, I kind of looked at them up and showed them just to see what ports that are commonly open there. Um, and it looks like you know, most of the devices that are scanning uh, do have port 554 TCP and port 9000 TCP open. And port 554 TCP is um, RTSP, which Again, it, it comes back to this, these probably likely being DVRs as described in this CVE. Um, so most likely this threat is spreading or re-spreading again, um, basically looking for uh, you know, additional uh, devices that they can recruit into their botnet, possibly for things like DDoS, like we talked before. You know, um, I, I think your my is that's what they make is DVRs and cameras, right? I think that's their big market. Yes, exactly. And actually, if you read this, um, I think it's a ZDNet article or some of the other articles on this topic, you'll actually see that uh, there's a list of like hundreds of DVRs that are like uh, white labeled or something like that. They're basically rebranded versions of this uh, DVR system underneath, and they're all vulnerable. So. Uh, you might think like, oh, I don't have a high silicon, uh, you know, uh, DVR, but you might. <laughs> uh, so uh, just be, you know, I guess for people who might have a DVR, um, you should be careful how you deploy it. Um, definitely be careful how you expose it on the internet, um, in your own network. It might be, it might be good to be able to monitor your DVR remotely. Uh, but just make sure you understand which ports you're exposing um, and don't expose all of the ports or don't put your DVR uh, right on the DMZ. You know, be very careful how you configure your network settings. There's a lot of very powerful options there that you just don't want to make a mistake on. Um, so moving on, uh, this is actually a, uh, a similar type of report as before. Uh, and this one's a little more closely tied into the uh, uh, botnet activity because this is looking for 
uh, concerted scanning all on the same port uh, by many, many devices at once. And we'll also use this as a measure of botnet activity. Um, so a lot of these ports, again, we've covered many times. They're very well known. There's a lot of people looking for them, not because they're necessarily part of a botnet, but because these are good, you know, top 10 ports you might scan. So the ports that we usually concentrate on uh, for further analysis are ones that wouldn't be, you know, in the top 10 that might represent um, a, a threat. And port 8291 TCP and actually port 8728 TCP represent two such ports. They're kind of just a little weird. They're not the ones that are enabled by default, like in most scanning software. So it just makes sense to look at them a little bit closer. Now, we've looked at these before on ThreatTrack, and the activity, if you look at it, is actually down from uh, the activity we were seeing even two weeks ago. Uh, but you could see there's still uh, tens of thousands of IP addresses um, scanning on these ports and looking for a vulnerability. And again, we already know what this vulnerability is. We've talked about it a few times on uh, ThreatTrack. Uh, but this is basically the uh, uh, microtech uh, exploit. I think it was also discovered um, in 2018. So port 8291 is associated with Winbox, which is a management interface for uh, microtech routers. It's not, a, I don't believe it's intended to be open on the internet interface. It's probably intended to be open on the LAN. Uh, but for some reason, uh, I guess there might be some uh, of these devices that are deployed uh, in a way that allows this management interface to be open on the internet. Uh, so unfortunately, what that allows is for various adversaries, including possibly this botnet, uh, to take advantage of these uh, microtech routers. Uh, now this one, just like the other, is very, very similar. Uh, you connect on port 8291, send a special packet, and it opens up a back door, and um, you can log in with some uh, well-known credentials, let's say, uh, you can SSH with well-known credentials, or you can um, um, you can maybe Telnet with well-known credentials. Um, so there's actually multiple different CVs that impact this, uh, but this is one that um, kind of recently popped on the radar for uh, uh, you know kind of very interesting uh, one to look at. Uh, and I just noted that uh, that one of the exploits, uh, CV 2018-14847. Uh, can be detected with this emerging threat snort rule. Uh, so in case anyone is running Microtech and you guys have a chance to deploy snort rules, you know, this will show you which devices are uh, attempting to do exploitation activity against your router. But honestly, uh, you should just make sure that this port is not open on the internet for your router. Uh, this should really be something that's only exposed on the LAN side and not on the internet side. So do be careful uh, of, of that. That will probably be better. I mean, the only thing that I would say here is that, uh, you know, my, the, these Microtech routers, uh, unfortunately, I, I think we've done so many different stories on these, on these devices. Um, it's, it's surprising to me how often, and I'm not on this show all the time, and it seems like every other time I'm on, we, we're talking about these micro-tick routers. So um, it's just uh, it's disconcerting how how frequently we actually see stories about vulnerabilities that are found in these particular routers. And yeah, you know, uh, Manny, that's very interesting because micro-tick is actually uh, we've seen some other botnets actually leverage. Um, 
microtech devices um, for part of their infrastructure. So uh, it's definitely important if you do have a microtech router, you know, make sure it's up to date, but really just make sure that like you're not exposing management interfaces on any device you manage. You should not, there should be no like router or F5 or, or DVR or any other appliance that you put the management interface of that appliance on the internet uh, because that basically leads to problems, you know, anything from brute forcing uh, all the way through, you know, obviously remote code execution, which, you know, it also leaves your internal network vulnerable uh, because once somebody has access to your router, kind of game over, unfortunately, for you because they can see everything that's coming in and out of your, basically, connection. Um, so uh, that's that's an important point to keep in mind. Yeah, I just had to look it up because I, I was curious on that same point, Danny. It's like, I don't hear a lot of microtech, you know, and of course, you know, in the bigger companies, you see, you know, the, the Junipers, the Cisco's, even the Huawei's, you know, you see the, the, the big router names that I think in microtech. And then it's a lot, Latvian company, and they make a lot of stuff for like the hobbyist. It seems like that that's a lot of the stuff that they're doing is, is the smaller um, company, smaller things, and a lot of stuff for do-it-yourselfers. So. With that, um, that's kind of it for the Internet Weather this week. Uh, if any of our viewers uh, have any suggestions or recommendations, uh, or if you know something more about these ports that are engaged in scanning, um, uh, do let us know. You can use the comments below. You can reach out to us on our mailing list, and we'd love to hear your feedback. Thanks, everyone. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.